At BASF, we don't make the plane. We make it lighter. We don't make the lotion. We make it smoother. We don't make the dress. We make it brighter. We don't make the carpet. We make it tougher. At BASF, we don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. BASF, the spirit of innovation. Are you the leading brand in your market? Are you the leading person in your department or the most skilled in your company? Or are you the challenger brand, second or third and trying harder? Or maybe you're working your way up the career ladder in your business, the challenger for the top position in the marketing group. We live in a time of change. Any leader, any company can fall from the top spot at a moment's notice. From the 1960s till 2008, the percentage of companies falling out of the top three in their industry has increased from 2% to 14%. But interestingly, profitability has flipped on its head in that same time period. The probability that the market share leader is also the profitability leader has declined from 34% in 1950 to just 7% in 2007. So what's that mean? Well, it means if you're the market leader today, you're spending a whole bunch of money to stay there. And the number of competitors nipping at your heels makes it sometimes impossible to even know what industry you're number one in. And the same thing is happening inside the walls of the company too, and especially for marketers. CMO turnover rate and senior level marketing leadership turnover rate is at its highest rate ever. While again, ironically, the need for change, strength, and stability in marketing is also at its highest need. But that brings up a great question. What's better, strength, scale, or resilience and the ability to change? Scale and the idea of big strength to be used as a competitive advantage? Today, not so much. Whether you're the king or the challenger for the throne, the key isn't strength and focusing on becoming the force. It's the ability to be resilient to change and move in and out of new markets that define our ability to last. This is not only important to us to recognize in our business strategy, but equally in our career strategy. Despite how deep our skills are in one area, getting good at new things is just as important. Looking for the new songs to dance to is, as one presidential candidate might say, a huge and bigly part of our career path. And that's the theme of our show today. Scale and strength versus resilience and flexibility, and knowing when to apply each. As Einstein said, the sign of intelligence is our ability to change. And now it's time for me to change into something a little more comfortable and get our little hour of flexible content marketing yoga on its way. You ready for a little content downward dog? Then let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with this old marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 152 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, October 10th, 2016. 
And with me, as always, is my colleague, my friend, my co-host, and the most flexible and Hatha yoga guru of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Uh, you know, you're probably doing much better than I am after Sunday's football games. <laughs> it was a it was a good it was a good Sunday. It was I have to say that it was a really good Sunday. The, the only thing I could say is I took my son Adam to the Browns game where they got destroyed by the Patriots. But I did tell him, I'm like, hey, you got a chance to see perhaps one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time play. So, I mean, yeah, I don't regret enough. at all yeah. taking him. And, and and at the same time, he got to see like six of the Cleveland Browns quarterbacks play in the same game, which was, you know, probably a record. So it's, you know, it's all good. It's fan. But I got the yeah. I got to tonight, you know, as we record this at six o'clock is the Indians Red Sox game. So I'm definitely looking forward to that one. See if we can close that bad boy out it is october and it is baseball and there is always hope so there's that you've got that going for that's you. right i mean i'm i'm sitting yeah we're sitting at the football game and i'm thinking hey the Cavs won the championship we got the indians in the in the uh, playoffs uh you know if the browns have to go zero and 16 that's fine it's uh, that's just the that's just the way i think i have the wrong season tickets though that's <laughs> I think I need to to really look at my choices when it comes someday, to sporting events. Someday it's going to pay off. <laughs> yes, it's uh yeah, it's been a while. Uh I I think I've told you this before. So I've been a season ticket holder for I think around 8 or 9 years and I haven't even seen them win 8 or 9 times. It, over the Oh my gosh. I mean, I haven't That's gone to wild. all the games that we get, to, you know, you go to sure, of course. go to 8 games a year, but well, man have you ever considered that maybe it's you? It, I actually have. <laughs> I was thinking that it, it was definitely me last night, you know, yesterday at the game. It's got to be me. I'm sure if I wasn't there, they would have uh, they would have beaten up on the Patriots. So, yeah, of course. So, well, before we get started, should we should we tell everyone yeah. about Intelligent Absolutely. Content Conference? There, I'm excited about this. So, I have to be honest. We just, I, I, this we have we have done something really special this year, you and I. Uh, what's that? <laughs> about ICC. <laughs> what have we done? That's preparation, folks. Pre- preparation and rehearsal. That's 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 what we're talking oh. about here. This is this is you're seeing a well-oiled show machine that's right here. Insane. No, what we've done for ICC with programming the event this year with some really cool, interesting, forward-leaning speakers. Just it's going to be an awesome event. Well, and we're mentioning it because the uh, registration just opened up. So go to intelligentcontentconference.com, check it out. It's March 28th to 30th, 2017 in one of my favorite cities in the world, and maybe not yours, but Las Vegas, Uh, and we will be there. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a real focus this year on artificial intelligence and machine learning. As as everyone knows, it's listened to this program. We've been talking about it here and there, but we are super excited and uh, we want to see you there. So just want to let everybody know, hey, it's on, uh, it's uh, registration is open now. So check it out. Take a look. We'd love to see you there. And uh, I'm. I think this is by far going to be our best one ever. So, I think that's that's what I that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> well, it's because Lord. you've been more involved in the programming this year that you can't just leave yeah. these things to me. I absolutely yeah. it'd be like me doing this podcast by myself. It would be lonely. <laughs> I mean, it'd be like normal. Like I just talk to myself. I, so lonely, so lonely. All right. So shall we? Uh, shall we? Do then we get have to any news? any news this non political news we, this week? We do. Uh, oh my gosh! Don't even get me started. I'm just so tired. I'm just. I'm just. We're not. No. No. We're not. 
going to bring up any politics on this program. Yeah, I, no, I, I know, just was no. throwing it out there because it was very. I was telling you, like I couldn't find any news that was non political in my it's Facebook hard. feed. So it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to actually go through your Facebook feed these days and just not be depressed. But you know, all right. So we will move on from there. And yes, we do actually have news here. Um, and the first uh, sh- uh, story for our show comes to us courtesy of the Wall Street Journal, um, and it is that the New York Times has shunned banner ads in favor of a proprietary ad format. Um, And so the article opens up by saying the New York Times is moving away from standardized banner ads on its website and plans to replace them with its own proprietary display ad format. So why is that and what does that have to do with content marketing? Well, as the article goes on to say, online banner advertising has become increasingly commoditized in recent years with the same standardized rectangular formats appearing on sites across the web. Marketers lament the lack of creativity in the format and have started to question its effectiveness, which has driven down ad prices. Meanwhile, platforms such as Facebook and Google have built huge ad businesses with their own proprietary or native ad formats and offerings. Spotting this trend, the Times is rolling out its own cross-device ad format called FlexFrame, this is the interesting part, to modernize its display ad business and improve the experience experience for both users and marketers. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about this, Joe, was as you went through the article, they actually showed a couple of examples of what that new flex frame uh, format would look like. And it's just ripe for content. It's just ripe for good, you know, it's just an open slot for somebody to put in some interesting content. And what did you think about this? Well, the first thing is, you know, you, you read this line, online banner advertising has become increasingly commoditized in recent years, says Captain Obvious. <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah, increasingly. Yeah. Can we just say completely, totally, yeah. and, you know. Yeah, tis a race yeah. to the bottom. Um, there are a yeah. couple things about this. Uh, <laughs> first, yeah, so they're phasing out. It seems that it sounds like they're phasing out the 300 by 250s and the 300 by 600s on their yep. way to, let's just say, if this was the plan, that in the next two years there would be very few banner advertisements. And it looks like, um, you know, this they're in sort of a beta test mode right now, but all banners on the New York Times site will be above the fold, and then anything else uh, advertising-related will be in this flex frame. Uh, and what I thought, so, I thought was interesting with that was, they're going to have their um, is it T Brand Studio T Brand Studio. So the That's the right. agency yep. within exactly within uh, New York Times is going to help out and create the ads. Which of course they don't want to just do copywriting, right? They actually want to create you know long longer form pieces of content integrated with. I mean, there's there's lots of up upsells and cross sell opportunities, and so they're going to double down on native advertising with this. So short term, I. I think this makes perfect sense. I like the fact that they're they're creating this proprietary style. I, I guess my concern is, all right, we see the movement toward native, and this is what I want to ask you. What do they do in two to three years? I mean, is there, do you think this is a long-term business model? I think that short-term, it makes complete sense to me. And, of course... It's the first step. Yeah, yeah. So what's the, nec- what's the next step? I mean, can, can so, New York Times, can New York Times and other media companies survive with native advertising as kind of their sole, um, sole revenue generating service, if you will? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that. I, I what, here's what I here's what I think I do know, which is 
when you look at what they're doing here, and I was particularly taken with the actual format of this flex frame thing because it's, quite frankly, if you're into blog design and some of the modern HTML5 and some of the interesting things that are going on with responsive and mobile, this is not going to be any big surprise to you because you've seen this, right? We actually talked about, I, I can't remember which show it was on, but it was, you know, 40 or 50 shows ago where we talked about this new, some of the new formats, expandable sort of accordion-like formats that we're starting to see on publications where you could actually click to see more information and it would actually fold down and you would actually, so there would be a short article and then in the middle there would be a sort of an extended piece that you could click and actually extend it down. And there's some really interesting that you're starting to see formats hit content in publishers that they've been using for content slots, right? So more information about this particular article or a sidebar or something like that, that makes sense on mobile formats where you really have a single column of scroll. All right. So that's geeky content guy stuff. And so when we start thinking um, about that as an ad format, this is what we're really talking about here, which is really just an extension of in the middle, in the in the flow of an article, you can have an ad and then which expands into a broader piece of content. Now, that's a really interesting thing from a UI UX perspective because now all of a sudden you can start to put in and to your point, make it it's more, you know, much more of a native experience and make it much more relevant to the user as they're sort of looking for deeper forms of content in that space. And that becomes more interesting from just engaging users more deeply. So that means layering, you know, sort of looking at content as layers and some of which will be a paid placement within other articles, which is really redefining the idea of advertising more broadly in a digital sort of format. What is next from that? I, I don't know. I, you know, I tend to agree with you when you go off on the idea of multiple revenue models and productizing and other ways of sponsorships. And I don't think native ads is ultimately the ultimate solution for publishers to survive. I think in many ways, as we've discussed on the show, we have to think about the idea of diversifying across, you know, media companies will diversify into products as product companies are diversifying into media and capturing audiences is really at its core there. So I, I buy all of that and I'm in all of that. I think this is a good first step toward providing a more diversified way for them and customized and more human and more engaging way to provide monetization of content in the short term. And, and maybe the medium term as well. I think you're going to start to see other publications really adopt this. What I think this really provides a challenge to, because quite frankly, the idea of programmatic and automated bots serving up ads, because it doesn't really work in this format. What this really works is where you've got human curated and, you know, maybe algorithmic at some point, but human curated formats and content that are getting placed into these slots that actually make sense to people who are actually reading them. So it'll be interesting to see how programmatic actually responds to this kind of thing. What's just interesting is, you know, of course you've got the stream and Facebook and Instagram and um, of course Twitter's worked like this for a long time. You just sort of stream through the, and, and this is not a new thing, but the, the web uh, the, like the web article itself is changing right now or has changed where if you go to a Washington Post uh, 
piece of content, you might just continue to just move down in the stream and a lot of and, and not like go to a new page, right? It'll just be continuing relevant content based on what you just clicked on. Some of these media sites are saying, hey, we're going to get rid of comments altogether. That means that if it's not just a page, then sponsored, uh, promoted, like promoted stories like you'd see on Taboola or Outbrain, those might go away or those might change. So you're going to see, okay, I'm going to this article. Oh, then there's a you know native ad and I'm going through again and the article's done, but then I'm going to another article. There's another eight native ad. And I think you just can continue, continue to scroll on that user experience people are used to because they've been dealing with that on social media. So I think this kind of a strategy that New York Times is doing plays into that. And I just, for a marketer, I think you just have to keep in mind, what does that mean? What do we need to do for our content or people are getting used to that kind of experience where they're not just clicking on something and going away? They're actually just... Well, that's a great point. So so this fits in really well. But if you're a marketer, now what do you have to do if the major media uh, companies enterprises are are looking at this kind of user experience i don't know but it's something we have to think about well no it's a great it's a great point because when you start to look at you know and this becomes much more relevant to those marketers who are you know look it's a very small percentage of our audience and content marketers in more broadly who would ever advertise and that this New York Times thing would be relevant to anyway, right? I mean, certainly some of our audience and some people who, you know, frequent Content Marketing Institute's content are New York Times advertisers, and this will have direct relevance. But the, the the, the more relevant point here, I think, to what you're getting at, which I think is right on the money, which is this, when we start looking at the New York Times as creating new types of interfaces for people to enjoy a content article, this becomes something for us to pay attention to as something that we can start to employ and and watch, quite frankly, and see if it ups their engagement rate, see if it ups their click-through rate, see if it actually ups subscription rate, see if it helps. And we can start to deploy that on the things that we're doing because when we start looking at the experience of a New York Times and what they're doing as a publisher and media company to provide and add value to their audience – then we can start to look at that from the way that we design our digital magazines, our emails, our, you know, the way that we're using and managing content and most optimally displaying it. Because if we can, if the New York Times can here set a standard, then that certainly it changes the face of advertising, you know, that say, hey, we're going to create more custom formats. But it also changes the way and starts to set standards for the ways that we actually consume all kinds of content across blogs and digital magazines and websites and, and those things as well. So there is there is great interest here. Certainly, I do. You know, great interest here and in, and seeing how this actually performs over time. Yeah. So that, that's the point. So as before, we go to the next uh, article and news topic. I, I if I'm going to look at this article from a marketer standpoint, beyond the oh yeah, I'm going to advertise for them. I want to say I want to think about oh in two years the the majority of a desktop and a mobile feel is going to just be like a stream experience. That's right. If it's a stream experience, what do I need to do now with how our customers are experiencing with our content? Um, and if keeping them as part of our site is a good thing, that kind of engagement time, then we should start thinking about that now. So, yeah, done. That's exactly right. That's done. Drop the Drop mic. Drop the mic. You are out. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, so many jokes and so little time. All right, so we'll move along here. Um, and the next story that we have to us is a really interesting one. Um, the The title of the article and the paper and sort of the experience that was created here is called Thought Leadership Disrupted. By the way, big hat tip here to Ruth Stevens, friend and family of the show for Shu. Hi, Ruth. Um, and they actually set up a whole site for this, tldisrupted.com, um, which was a study um, that was done about thought leadership and sort of the use of thought leadership from a marketing perspective. And certainly content marketing falls right into that. The introduction to the website opens up by saying, overwhelmed by the amount of content coming at them, executives say they are more discerning about the sources they choose and reward brands that are credible thought leaders with sales, loyalty, and advocacy. 75% of executives have become more selective. Just over 80% cite volume of content as the reason for being more selective. To explore the role of this thought leadership in today's marketing mix, this group set up an expert advisory board and polled more than 1,600 marketers and senior executives worldwide. The results, say the report, suggest that thought leadership offers big rewards for those who get it right, but faces several challenges, including the need to refocus on producing original and evidence-based content and embed greater management discipline in its development and delivery, while at the same time continuing to push back the frontiers in terms of presentation, targeting, and distribution to sort of look at uh, our first story as a nice segue here, sort of looking at the different ways to present it. So what did you think about this? I mean, I thought this was just, one, I was just really impressed with the presentation of this this study as a whole website. But what did you what did you think about the content? I, actually, just a quick question, and I, I didn't have this planned at all not that i plan anything on this show but is this a sponsored piece of content is this in association with hill and knowlton strategies i think it's sponsored it is yeah it's it just is. interesting that, you know hey we're talking about a sponsored piece of content. i just it's so meta uh anyway yeah. <laughs> anyway it's definitely it's definitely a sponsored piece it's hill and knowlton strategies have put this together uh, the economist group is the publishing platform for this um and but it's a whole I don't know whether you'd call it a native piece or whatever, Microsite but they basically or, set up yes. an entire mini site for this study. Well, I, I I don't disagree with anything that this report talks about. I mean, I think that I love the whole the idea of evidence based content. Where I mean, we've talked about the the value of research specifically. If we're talking about thought leadership, we're probably talking about business to business here. So if we're talking about B two B, the the whole idea of taking a position around an idea and then using research to back that up is incredibly important. Of course, that's what this piece is all about that they're doing. I think the the, the point that they make about corporate mandate to really get good at this, I mean, you've been talking about this forever. I mean, you really, you, you can't just, I think I, I saw a little piece from you the other day that says you can't leave it to the content marketing to the content department. I think I just like you read, you, you wrote that article. And I mean, that's true, right? I mean, this has to be a, a full company. You know, we talked about it last week, right? You have to be all in and committed to this now. Okay, great. We all agree that this is an important thing. Um, thought leadership works when it's done well, but a lot of companies aren't doing well yet. We're seeing, you know, most of them aren't really committed to it, but 80% of these companies are creating more content over the next 12 months. Our own research backs that up as well. The one thing that I would say, and I kept thinking about as I watched the video and I read through some of this stuff is, if you're going to do this and be a thought leader, you actually have to take a side. You actually have to 
take a position. Right. And I think that's where we you have to actually lead thought. <laughs> Go figure, right? That's the whole yeah. thing. And I think that the majority of thought leadership programs that we get sent to us and we happen to see uh, just talk about what's going on. They don't take they're very vanilla. Uh, they don't take a side to it. And if you don't take a side, like and, and Ann Hanley and Doug Kessler have talked about this really well. Like you, you have to actually uh, have people out there that don't like your content, that actually don't like you, in order to get people that really do like you, right? Or don't agree, or don't agree. Or, you know, I mean, it, exactly. You, know, you don't have to be disagreeable. You just have to. You just. They, in other words, you don't have to be an ass about it. I'm sorry. I watched to, the debate last night. I'm just. <laughs> yeah, I totally exactly. have no idea what's going on with the world anymore. <laughs> uh, but that's a that's right. a whole other thing. You know, they also talk about sales driven driven content as a turnoff. Of course, we talked about that before. Yeah. Our research shows that as well. Um, but the, the the underlying thought here, besides the um, the idea of taking a side, was less content and more impactful content seems to be what these sixteen hundred marketing executives are talking about. Like we really need to not look at the then, then that's where I don't get it because they they talk these marketing leaders are saying look less but impact more impactful content is the way we need to go. But yet all of these companies pretty much are. Sp- creating more content over the next 12 months. So yeah. what does that mean? I don't, I, what, they're still creating content for content's sake, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, you know, here's the, it's absolutely true. You know, so there's sort of two things that struck me, one about the, the study and, and the other sort of to, to the points you're making, which is this, you know, the, what I see most commonly um, from brands that are trying to use thought leadership as a means of, of, of producing differentiating content. And differentiation, by the way, is the huge driver here, right? Is that they're not actually differentiating. What happens yeah. is, is that the marketing, marketing people uh, will get content from subject matter experts or will bring in influencers for subject matter expertise and basically create this subject matter expertise that... In many ways, it starts out really great. There's a definitive point of view. It's differentiated. It's distinct. It's actually leading the thought, you know, which is sort of the, the verb in front of the adjective there. And the, 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 the idea is, is that it's creating something that's worth, you know, challenging a viewpoint or actually taking a point of view on. Then all of a sudden it goes to legal and then it goes to the account people and then it goes to sales and then it goes to other departments. And by the time it goes through that sort of, uh, you know, valley of, 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 of people through sort of pulling any value that it had out of it, it comes out and it's still four or five thousand words of a white paper, but it's just mush. And so it's that's the challenge that we have on the business side. And in fact, it's interesting. The study actually saw this where they one of the findings in the study says that more than 60 percent of marketers strongly agree or somewhat agree that internal alignment is a barrier in creating effective thought leadership. And this is the part that I see all the time, which is. One of the biggest challenges is that we have subject matter experts or, or again, influencers, and mostly this is internal subject matter expertise, where, yes, they know backwards and forwards the industry, they're subject matter experts, they've got it, but quite frankly, 
they're not the best person to tell that story. They're not the best person to write it up. They're, they're, you know, it's either too professorial, too esoteric. They're trying to make it sound like they're smart. So they're writing, you know, 401 level material for what should be a 101 level class, or they're trying to take all sides of a particular equation so that they end up coming out with nothing because quite frankly, they're just afraid of actually taking a perspective that might anger a prospective customer. And that's the part that's really difficult is that if you are actually going to be a thought leader in the industry, you actually have to take that side and be willing to be wrong for someone. And if you're not, then there's not really any point to doing it because quite frankly, if you just put out mush, then it's just ultimately going to get you nowhere because quite frankly, it's not leading any thought and it's not only not doing good for your brand, it's actually, it's actually doing harm to your brand because at that point, you're just adding to the noise and quite frankly, people read it and go, I, don't, I not only didn't get anything out of that, it's actually annoying that I read that. Well, and that's, that's the, you know, so it, it is actually decreasing the amount and really focusing in on that quality. Well, you and I talk about audience personas and audience development and this, this uh, study talks about putting the needs of the audience above our own but what what i really think you should do and i've done this with uh, i think i think you have as well but i've worked with a couple uh clients and customers on this but we want to write down who do we not want as our customers and our audience like really we always focus on here's our audience personas we have you know if you're a b2b company you have seven and nine you have buyers gatekeepers influencers and that's all fine but at some point you have to really say who do we not want like, who would this content not be for? And you might think that's a very simple exercise, and it's not. Because usually, if you're on the sales side, you want to sell to everybody. We want all of it. And if you want all of it, if your content is for everybody, then we talk about it's for nobody. So what what are you right. going to do? You need to make those decisions. So a really good exercise is to say, well, we really don't want these people. We really don't want, don't want right. these people as customers. And then you can really start to focus on, oh, where can we be the leading source? of information yeah. to this particular set of people we're trying to talk to. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly right. And not to, you know, not to just continue to beat the dead horse here, but it's, it's, it's truly one of those things where if we're actually going to use thought leadership to our advantage, then we actually have to figure out what, you know, not only who the audience is, but what is it that we're trying, where is it that we're trying to bring them, right? What is it that we're, you know, what we're actually trying to do? And in, in many, and I talk about this a little bit, and I'm not going to go into too much detail here because it's just for lack of time, but I talk about this idea of three levels of thought leadership, right? So there's this sort of visionary, high level, let's basically frame out what the new world looks like, and this is our you know, sort of futurist look at a new world of where our solution has solved XYZ problems or our approach or whatever the sort of idea of our sort of vision of the future looks like. And then underneath that, you have sort of this, what does the customer look like in this situation? In other words, let's assume that this, this quote unquote new future has been realized. What, what, do you, what are the implications for customers or for the people who would you know, sort of take this approach look like? And then there's a third level which is this, okay, how do you actually do that? How, what are, you know, what's the how-to, to the mechanics of actually making that particular change if you're interested in making that change? The biggest challenge is, is that most thought leadership focuses on the bottom two. And when they focus, and they try and do both in the same white paper. 
So in other words, it's usually some combination of, you know, here's what the, you know, here's what, here's what this customer did. So this is when thought leadership looks like a customer case study. Here's what some customer did and here's how they solved this particular problem. And here's how to do it for you. And what they haven't done is actually established the end game, the vision of where they're going to begin with. And so you ha- if you haven't convinced a customer that the future is actually a better place, then telling them how to do it bears no merit. And if you do just the top, if you just set the vision of what's going on in the top and you never explain the mechanics of how there is actually a change that can happen here, then you lose basically people at the vision. So all three are important, but it's important to recognize which of the three that you're actually trying to do in any given piece. Most if you look at most content calendars, is there, they don't have an audience outcome field. And I think that's a big that's right. problem. Like, oh, we're creating this piece of content. What's in it for the audience? Where do we want to yeah, take them? That's right. what, and, and I think if you do that, you will change everything about your content marketing approach. If you really just focus on before doing the thing, actually focusing on what, where What's are we the taking outcome? them? And that's just a very little fix-it strategy that you could put in. That you could try tomorrow and say, okay, yeah, this we're going to add audience outcome to our editorial calendar, and see yeah. and make sure that everybody that's looking at this knows this is what we want the audience to get out of this piece of content. Exactly. Love. Yeah, it. I like it. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> All right, you you take yeah. that. You take that and you do it. Today. <laughs> All right. Let's look at our last story here very quickly, and this comes courtesy uh, of thedrum.com. And the headline is, What McDonald's, the fast food restaurant, has learned from its failed YouTube channel? Big hat tip here, by the way, to Kim Owens at Buzz Boulevard on Twitter. So thank you, Kim, for the shout-out on the hashtag. Um, And the article opens up by saying, As suddenly as it came, McDonald's YouTube channel went... And the restaurant has opened up about what went wrong during that 12-month period, particularly the challenges of simultaneously scaling content and generating earned media value. The fast food chain was one of the most high-profile brands to enter the content space last September after recognizing that it wasn't connecting with 16- to 24-year-olds. Enter Channel Us, a YouTube channel presented by popular YouTube faces Ollie White and Gabriella Lindley, which focused on how-to videos such as how to become a music video director, how to dance, featuring famous faces in different fields. At launch, McDonald's heralded the channel as a groundbreaking moment for the brand in the UK, but just over 12 months later, and with none of the nine films posted in 2016 managing to hit 1,000 views, the chain decided to cut its losses. The article then goes on to talk a little bit about more of the failure of the YouTube channel. Um, I definitely have a take on this, but what was yours, Joe? My take exists on several levels, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> several philosophical um, levels. I, I have. Let's. I'd like to hear the. I'd like to hear the Nietzsche uh, level yeah, exactly. of the uh, I, I, of this take. All I have on these are questions. I, I have questions like, <laughs> what was their goal? Like, really, yes. what were they trying to do? Now, it sounds like they only hitting a thousand or not getting to a thousand views on any of these films is not a good thing. Doesn't sound like a lot to me for a consumer side brand, but I don't know. What was the goal? Were we trying to target certain people? Were we trying to just, uh, is this a new form of advertising for them? And they were just uh, measuring it with reach? I don't know. So, you know, a couple other things. Uh, I I didn't really get the, the, the as you said, the, the content position, right? The, 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 the differentiation. McDonald's, 
doing a how to dance or how to be a music director, I don't, it doesn't quite click with me. I don't know why, why they did decide, why they decided to go that direction. I'm not sure that makes sense to me. So I would go back and say, well, are they just trying to create lots of content that they think this audience would be interested in? Or are they trying to create content as it says later in this, uh, this piece in, in content that has a purpose, some kind of a purpose, which I think is really important. YouTube, like, all right, not easy to do. Not easy to, to build a platform on YouTube. You know, we, we've, we've talked about that in the past. So why did they end up choosing YouTube for, for that one? Uh, maybe they didn't wait long enough. Just 12 months? Seems like a long time for a campaign, but for a content marketing program, not very long. So or did you just not give it enough time? Here's my last thing, and I have a lot more questions, but I want to, let, I want to get your take on this whole thing. If they created nine films in 12 months, which I'm just like, okay, don't really get the consistency of that. And they only were able to hit, you know, less than a thousand views on any one of these or whatever the case is. They were not putting anything into distribution. They couldn't have been putting any money into distribution, which is the big no-no that we've talked about since for the last year, that if you're going to create content, anything like their McDonald's is doing, and you don't have a current audience built on the platform that you're creating this content on, you better put some money behind it. And I don't think they did that uh, because if they would have put even a couple thousand bucks, they'd have gotten more views than that. So, I, I mean, I don't, I just don't know if this was a well thought out program. By the way, if they kept going with it and put some money behind it, maybe it would have worked. Maybe. So I, I don't know why this thing fell down. Uh, but yeah, I have. I have like 17 other questions, but that, I'm just going to leave it right there because I want to get your take. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, the, here's the thing. It's, one, there's a lot to learn here, um, I'm sure. Um, and so, I mean, this is the, the first and foremost one is where, what will, you know, to your point, what was the goal? Where were we trying to do with these folks once they actually watched one of these videos? Yeah. What was the call to action? What were we actually trying to do with them? Were we trying to pull them into an owned media experience and turn them into subscribers and learn something about them? My take, as I read the article, is they were trying to learn how to reach the tricky millennial sort of crowd. And to your point, just building a YouTube channel is probably the worst possible way to reach that particular crowd. And so, you know, if you were looking at a list of things to do to reach the millennial crowd, launching a YouTube channel is probably number 474 of that would be on that list. Now, to your point, promoting a YouTube channel or building a video channel more broadly, just talking about video in other words, using video and doing short films that do things like teach people how to dance or teach people how to do things. Now, that's an interesting idea. There's an interesting idea there, but then how does it express itself? And so I think, honestly, I, without knowing any of the details yeah. of, just like you're saying, you know, with a million questions, my guess is what they did is they let the format drive the idea. In other words, somebody said, let's launch a YouTube channel. And then somebody went, great, what, what should we, we put about? on that YouTube That's channel? Right. And so it should have been exactly the opposite of that. It's what is it that would, what would these kids really value? Well, they might value 
you know, how-to videos of how to dance or how to make music or whatever we're trying to do. And these YouTube faces that these YouTube stars could provide might actually give us some credibility with that. Great. That's an interesting idea. Now let's talk about whether YouTube is actually the best mechanical vehicle for that or whether it should be Snapchat or whether it should be, you know, a combination of Snapchat plus Facebook plus YouTube plus a blog plus a let's figure out the idea and the content and the story first and then all the different ways that it'll express itself. Because to your point, television should have probably been one of the ways to do that. Print might have been one of the ways to do that. Twitter, Snapchat, many of those things would have been great promotional vehicles to actually pull people into these experiences. And then certainly, you know, a, a, a thousand views on each is a low, you know, is a low bar to try and hit. But the question is, what's the bar? Yeah. Right, you know, are we trying to get to 10,000 or 100,000 or a million? What is good? What does success look like? So lots of questions, as you say. And I think the real key here to me, what I'm guessing is, is that they put format in, in, in front of function and, and, and lost their way because of it. I'm only going to say one more thing just because I had a couple marketers ask me this whole millennials thing. I'm so tired of we want to target millennials. The, targeting an age yeah. bracket is the absolute worst way to go about and find your story. You say, "Oh, we want to target this age group." Well, they, they have these. This it's not just an age group, right? They, you're targeting a certain group of people with certain likes. You want them to do certain behaviors. Let's focus on those things. If they happen to have their the, in the 16 to 24 age bracket, then fine. But. I don't get the whole thing. Well, we've got to target this age bracket. And of course, that's the way that it's been done for a long time, right? But I think that maybe we're, we should move out of that a little bit and focus on what is this age group like? You could look at anything. That age group likes, likes a thousand different things. And what yeah. do we, I, no, I, just, exactly. I, mean, I don't, I don't get it. I don't like yeah. it. Well, I don't. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> get off on a rant here but yes the whole idea of millennials being some sort of alien species that we have to sort of you know have how special it's means of it it's like it's like come on they're you know it's it's kids it's you know they're kids like we were kids like anybody's kids and they have different means of you know like every generation before them have had different means and different values and different things that they aspire to and yes, that's one of the main things that we have to do as marketers. Guess what? That's marketing. It's, you know, it's just that's, that's what it is. There's no, you know, there's no secret formula here. <laughs> I wish there was. I think it would, yeah. I think it would be Yoohoo. I think Yoohoo yeah. would be the secret formula <laughs> if there was one. Yoohoo. Yes. You, yeah. Pudding. Yes, Yoohoo and Pudding. Pudding pud Pops. So, All right. Speaking of, speaking of Yoohoo and Pudding, we have the most tasty and delicious sponsor to talk about. Yes, we do. Special thanks to our sponsor this week, Ion Interactive, our good friends at Ion. And they are offering a very interesting user experience that everyone needs to check out called 50 Ways to Engage Your Audience, an Interactive Lookbook. Now, if you want to find a fun way to really look at these 50 ideas for improving content engagement, then you found it. This interactive lookbook is what you want to take a look at to find out how you can create better content, how you can engage, engage your audience in different ways, and they show you actually how to do it. Uh, and you can get all kinds of ideas and results through the lookbook. So you can go to cmi.media slash 
PNR152, cmi.media slash PNR152. And Robert, you know I was flipping through this. You've had a chance to check it out. It's definitely worth the look. It's a, just a fun way to educate yourself. Um, and by the way, if you want to get it, there's a PDF as well that you can download. So you, if, you, if you don't like the user experience, if you don't want to have fun, if you don't like fun, you can get the PDF, okay? Because we've got you covered. But if you'd like to have fun, you can just... If you're an opponent to fun, if, you if you're yeah. against fun. Some people don't like fun. We like fun. I, I, we I like heard. the lookbook uh, experience. But if you don't like that, then then there's the standard old PDF for you. So cmi.media slash PNR152. Thanks to Ion Interactive again for being our, our wonderful supporter and sponsor. Absolutely. Thank you. It's a really good piece of content. It's re- and, and do enjoy the fun. Enjoy the fun of it because it's just a, it's a delightful piece of content. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite part of the show, which is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel like, oh, like we've hit a brick wall or something that makes us feel flexible, like we're doing sun salutations for the entire day. Um, and let's see, I'm going first because I have this. You're, you know what? I got to tell you, you're, you're much more confident the past few episodes. You just know. I thank you. Well, you know I finally, it's first, taken me 150. Yeah. It's, it took me about 150 episodes to get it down, but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, it, it's, it's something that has finally sunk. Well, there in. it is folks. <laughs> now you've heard from the master, like how, what, how long, how many episodes, how many podcast episodes do you have to do to really understand the format? It's 150. Is 150. It's 150. Yeah, it's 150. It's basically, yeah, 150 <laughs> hours before you figure it out. Thank you very yeah. much for calling me out on that. Um, I'm watching the bus as it drives away, and I was under it. Thank you for that. You and Mike Pence. Okay. There you go. Yes. So I have two very quick commentaries here. I don't know whether they're rants or raves. And as you've also stated before, I, I, I often sort of cross the boundaries of each. But here's here they are. The first is... Um, as I have been on record for a gajillion years, it seems, uh, certainly the last two, about Google purchasing uh, Twitter here. And so my social feed last week was filled with lots of people um, sending me emails and direct messages and whatnot saying, hey, guest, look, look, Google has dropped out. Um, of actually buying Twitter, and they, they're saying basically that everybody's dropped out, and Twitter shares took a hit because of it. And what I want, and the, what I'll link to in the show notes, and, and certainly what I would point out is, is that folks, everybody, take a deep breath. This is what's called a negotiation. This is what's going on here. They're they're driving down the price of the stock very, very, you know, with very consciously here. There's actually a Wall Street Journal article and a video that I'll actually link to in the show notes where the analyst uh, actually agrees with me. Now, again, I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong about Google actually being the ultimate suitor of Twitter. And there may be something in Twitter's books that truly is a poison pill that Google doesn't want to swallow here. And so anything could happen. I'm certainly cognizant of that. But to my, in, in my mind, Google is still the number one leading contender to purchase the social media uh, platform. And if they don't, then it's something that they will have taken a big swing and a miss on. So yes, so that's still out there. So that's my one piece there. Um, the can second, I, can, I, can I comment on that? Yeah, do, yeah, do no, please do. Oh, um, please do. Before, so Twitter stock price was at $24, $25 before the articles came out that the suitors were dropping and Salesforce doesn't have the money and Disney's off the table. So They've lost uh, $8 per share in this, and that's something like 
uh, six or seven billion dollars in market cap that's dropped. Yeah. So the price. Right. So to your point, it, it, this could be an absolutely brilliant move if Google stays in. And, and you and I were talking before the show. What we think, you know, if if that's the case, which it very well could be, twenty two to twenty three dollars uh, is a lot different than what they would have had to pay, which was probably around twenty eight dollars. That's and, exactly. Right. Uh, they saving a lot of money. They, this, they yeah. can, if, the, they if get this more. goes through, they will have saved a lot of money. And this is not un, you know, this is not unheard of. This happens in many, many, you know, the best, you know, this is this is literally them sitting in the sales manager's office and the sales manager going, "That's the best deal we're going to do on that car," and you getting up to walk away from buying the car, and them chasing you out the door saying, "No, no, 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 do we we did, we've got a special deal just for you." So, so <laughs> somebody let it leak. Yeah, somebody let it yeah. leak that we're not interested. Uh, then we're going to come back and get them at twenty dollars. <laughs> to share so. is is that the voice that I have? Is that, <laughs> like that voice that's Ser- that's oh. sergey's voice <laughs> i'm sorry oh, Go okay ahead. i like that one yeah. very much all right my second one a uh, very quick commentary here is something that also hit my social feed um with, uh, some of you sent this as a story idea um, and a few of you sent it to me privately as well, based on my rant on the Olympics, which is the NFL this week announced uh, that they had sent notes back in September to the teams, um, all 32 teams, basically saying, listen, you, we don't want you to be posting uh, animated GIFs and video um, to uh, to social media during the games, and they may now get fined for it. And it's something that they announced back in September, but actually a few teams had gone awry, and they've actually started to uh, make some make some waves because they're actually levying some of these fines here. I'm going to actually sort of um, basically say, look, I I agree with the NFL here I, to a to, to a degree, and I and I That's I know it's a little. I know it's a definitely a, a first for me to agree with the NFL, but I understand what they're trying to do here. Basically, the, what the rules say is that the teams aren't allowed either one hour before kickoff or one hour after the end of the game until then basically post any video. So they can't do live periscoping or Facebook live video during the game, actually at the, while they're at the game. Totally get that and totally understand it. These are teams, by the way. And then they also don't want people, uh, uh, their teams, posting up video and or animated GIFs of the game within those hours, et cetera, et cetera, or an hour after after the game. And I kind of get it, right? They want to sort of maintain integrity of the broadcast of the actual game itself <clears throat> and not have it being posted up live during the actual game, whether it's a you know amazing play or whatever. Um, and basically, that's the... You know that's the general thing. I, I kind of get that, um, and so one of the things that I, I think we'll we'll see is whether that they take it a step too far. But for now, I think I understand. So basically, Robert Rose and Roger Goodell are are thinking along the same lines. I never thought that that would happen, but it's happened. I don't really know what to do with myself. Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's like you the fact that I agree with that. Roger Goodell on anything is is a is a is a is a milestone in and of itself. I just sort of, I get it. I understand it. it doesn't it doesn't infuriate me. I, I sort of I understand them trying to draw some lines here. This is not at all like what the what the um, you know what the USOC was doing during the Olympics. To- totally agree with that. So 
Do you have another rave or rant or anything? No, like no, that? that's, that's it. it. I'm done. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely done. All right. No, I, just, I was just, I was just listening. I was enjoying myself just listening to the to you talk about all kinds of wonderful stuff. All right, I have, <laughs> I, I have a, uh, I guess it's a rave. Uh, so this comes uh, courtesy of Scott Monty to uh, Jeremiah Yang's page on web strategist.com. Um, and basically, the article is called Facebook Joins the Collaborative Economy with Marketplace. And if you haven't seen that, you know, Facebook announced last week that they've announced the launch of Marketplace, which is a feature in now four countries that enables users to buy and sell their goods using Facebook connections. Now, granted, they got a long way to go. The only reason I'm bringing this up is Facebook is starting to diversify its revenues. We talked about this earlier in the program. They're starting to diversify their revenue streams as a media company. They are a media company. As a media company needs to do, they are way too reliant on advertising revenue, which is like 98% of their revenues. So they're trying to say, okay, what do we need to do? And they're going up against, of course, the, the Ebays of the world and the... Uh, the Listias and all kinds of other established players in, uh, you know, marketplace type websites. Um, this is actually a really good article I'm going to put in because uh, Jeremiah talks about what features Facebook is missing, including a payment system. And I thought right away, if they really go into this, Robert, I, I really think that wouldn't you think that Square would be up? Square Square is still an independent company, right? Couldn't Facebook go ahead yeah, and, and purchase that? I yeah. mean, I think that if Facebook really gets into digital transactions, whether it's through Messenger or Facebook itself, and they run this marketplace, they're going to need some kind of a payment system. Um, similar to the way eBay uh, uses PayPal, I think that Square comes into play. Lots of other things that Facebook needs to do. The whole point that I'm bringing this up is I like that they're diversifying their revenue streams and how that's relevant to everyone listening to this is if you look at companies like Disney on the consumer side, and we've talked about Aero Electronics on the B2B side, who's been purchasing all these you know electronics engineering platforms of late, I think that the leading most innovative companies in the world are both product and service companies and media companies. And you really won't be able to tell the difference. We've talked about it on the show before. I think Facebook is starting to make that play where they will be selling products and services as well as advertising that they'll continue to do uh, successfully. So I think that if you are a marketer right now, you have to think about the other side of that. It's like, do we have an opportunity in media? And, and you and I have talked about you know, some things that we're working on to, about marketing as a profit center itself. So I, I think that this is just laying the groundwork for the future of what we see most companies as in doing both of these things. It's not just yeah. you're not just going to say that's a media company or that's a brand that sells products or services. I think it's just going to be, wow, they do all these things like a la Red Bull, right? course we yep. have to mention that's exactly we right. have to mention red bull every four or five episodes or we get in trouble yeah. <laughs> so well it's one of those things it's you know i and i agree with you i think it's you know i mean this is the truly the definition of you know i mean there's a whole thing going on now with you know wall street and and looking at new the new sort of new companies quote quote unquote and they're calling them platforms right yeah so when you look at something like an uber or an airbnb or a facebook 
or you know all of the Google certainly fits into this new companies that are emerging, large companies at scale that are emerging. Boy, and this goes right to the theme of the show, right? This idea of scale versus you know uh, you know adaptation, and what they're doing is they're sort of adapting in real time and becoming a platform of an audience, and then basically monetizing it in multiple different ways. And this is the whole idea of what a platform really is. And so at its core, this is what business success will be, is how many different ways can we actually make money using an aggregated customer base as our source. And that's, you know, that's, that's scale these days. And, and that scale is an ability to be flexible and adapt to all of these new modes of being able to monetize different audiences that we, that we have. And so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a new world that we're in for sure. I think it's a big secret that, you and I are trying to sort of debunk that uh, there's all these companies out there that are driving revenue directly from their audiences and not a lot of people are talking about it. I think everybody's talking about content marketing in the traditional way where we're trying to sell more products and services or loyalty retention, whatever the goals are. And I think we've got this opportunity to talk a little bit more about that as, as generating direct profit, the audience generating direct profit as well as product sales, and services sales or loyalty retention can kind of adding a new component to that. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing, it's a business strategy. It's a business strategy. And that's the, that's the, that's ultimately the end of it, right? It's, it's, this is, this is where we are is the content and our use of it to monetize audiences is a business strategy. And we would argue it's something that marketers perform, but it's, it's ultimately, it's ultimately can and should affect the entire business, not just lead flow. So you have a, a cool this old marketing this week, right? I do have a cool this old marketing. Yeah, I, so this is, is going to be, I mean, the, the, what I love about this example so much is that it's right out of your book, right out of Content Inc. So now this is not going to make a ton of sense for, for those of you who aren't necessarily in California, but this is a small company, um, and, and I love it as a small company. So there's a company called The Pressed Juicery. Um, those of you who live in Southern California and California more broadly may be familiar with it. Um, basically, there's this guy, Hayden Slater, who is the co-founder um, of, the, uh, of the company, and basically started the company, the Press Juicery, and it's, as, it's, as it's named here, it's basically they provide press juices. And so fresh juice that's basically pressed and nothing but juice. So no sugar, nothing else into it, just the actual juice itself. And he was a former fast food junkie, self sort of called fast food junkie, who basically introduced juice into his diet and he lost 60 pounds. And they took the passion and they started stores with it. And he's, they started here in Los Angeles and a really cool, fun startup story. Basically, he was a film guy and an actor and, a, and wanted to make films for a living and then basically gained a bunch of weight and then started as an entrepreneur selling the juice. And, and there's a whole one. The, what we'll link to in the show notes is this wonderful story of how he started the company in his bedroom and basically, you know, rented space in this uh, little restaurant um, at night so that they could actually make the juices. So they rented space in a restaurant and then the health department found out that they were actually renting the space and making the juices in this other restaurant, which is illegal. Who knew that? But they found out that that was actually illegal. So they actually had to go, you know, fight this big case, you know, with the health department and did all of that and basically launched the stores 
and this is what I loved about this is, is that as he talks about in this article, growing to their first thousand customers and they produced wonderful product and they had produced this, you know, this stuff and had their first storefront. And the first thing that they did was they wrote a book and they wrote this book talking about the benefits of juice and how, you know, getting on uh, fresh juice was really a part of a healthy lifestyle. And it had recipes in this book. And then as part of that, they actually launched this site. Um, this is back in 2013, so um, a little more than three years ago now, actually launched this site called The Chalkboard. And The Chalkboard is also a whole site around food, nutrition, fitness, well-being, style, living. Um, it's this wonderful blog that they started. And as the content mission of The Chalkboard, which we'll also, of course, link to in the show notes, starts, it's a guide to living well with a mix of experts, insights, healthy recipes, natural beauty picks, um, toxin-free living ideas. Um, they launched the, I'm sorry, not 2013, 2012 is when they launched um, uh, the the uh, the actual blog. It was one of the very first things they did was to launch this media thing called the chalkboard and this book that they started selling through bookstores and it basically became the way that they drew awareness it was their main marketing platform for three and a half years and so as they've done it through that they've actually used that platform of the chalkboard to go and that becomes their social media presence and they did foursquare and instagram and facebook and they used all of that through the content that they were creating and as they say to 20 to date in 2015 They've basically created 1.3 billion media impressions in 170 countries, and they spent less than $20,000 to do it. Oh, my gosh. It's just a great, amazing story here. And it's a huge success story now because they've, they've got stores all over California now. They're growing by leaps and bounds. Um, and it's just a wonderful success story of somebody who started with a con- you know, started by building an audience through content and using that to drive foot traffic into their stores and drive awareness of their idea, their approach to what they were trying to solve, which was of course healthy living through juices. And it's just a it's just a great story and a great example of this old marketing. What's the name of the What's the name of the company again? What's the the chain? Pressed Juicery. Pressed Juicery. I have to check that out. That is awesome. Yeah. Of course I. Yeah, I'm partial to those examples, so I love love that. Fantastic, it's great. Yeah, and it, and the two and then we'll we'll link to the interview with the CEO who tells his whole story in this wonderful interview, and then of course link to the, um, the chalkboard itself, which is their content marketing platform, digital content marketing platform. So a really cool story. Excellent. All right, my friend, what do you got going on this week? I have uh, nothing actually, other than work, work, work. I'm, I work, 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 work. <laughs> <laughs> It's me singing Rihanna. Um, oh, God. There we go. Yeah. Heads down this week and really just uh, jamming through a bunch of stuff, doing some writing, doing some client work, and I'm happy to be home, I have to say. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, uh, no, it's uh, it's the same, actually. Um, we've we've You and I are working on a couple things, um, you know, ICC yeah. and, and a couple other ideas. That, and then, of course, yeah. we're preparing for the master classes, which we're going on the Six City Tour. So this is sort of the calm before the storm. And then you yes, and I exactly. are out on the road. Not that it's a bad thing for us traveling, but it's it is it's going to be interesting trying to figure out when we're going to get our you know the PNRs done. But we'll you know because we like to when yeah. we when we go into a city we like to meet and have a drink and yeah of course and then do a podcast. So. Yeah, well, it'll be one of those situations where you're on the sixth floor and I'm on the third floor, and we're doing we're, we're doing it like we always do, but just like two floors apart instead of you know four states apart. I think the last time you got a higher floor than I, I was really upset about that. I'm still yeah, upset I know, about it. I know you care about you care about your staff. I'm going to so. call ahead next time. 
<laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it. We are signing off for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose. And you know, if you like this episode, number 152, 152 weeks later, and I'm finally getting this stuff down, do consider subscribing or leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher.com or all those places where you leave such reviews. And if you do review us, if you do subscribe, let us know. Hashtag us up on Twitter at This Old Marketing. We'd love to thank you personally for that. And of course, story ideas, story ideas, examples of This Old Marketing. They're just awesome. Hashtag us up at This Old Marketing. And if you've got a question, you can also send us it via email at thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes, which are available on Monday night as we go to publish the show. And of course, in their full regalia and loveliness on the show post at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. Until next week, everybody, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.